It is a great privilege uh, again to be standing here in front of you all, being part of this preaching series uh, we have in the book of uh, Philippians. Um, it's always an honor. Um, you know, I had a lot of excitement and uh, nervousness studying this book. I mean, there's just so much the vastness and the wonderful truths that are in this letter, uh, but also with, of course, a lot of joy. Um, but before we begin, let us pray. Father, it is your word, though written by imperfect men, it is inerrant, it is inspired, it is infallible. And those spoken and will be spoken will be preached by imperfect men. Father, your word still and always will accomplish its purpose. So this is for our, for our joy and for our encouragement and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So with this uh, tremendous text that uh, we have in Philippians 3, I was given a task to focus on the commands to stand firm and to press on. So being faithful to the task, I simply titled the sermon, Stand Firm and Press On. And this goes along with the main idea of the book of Philippians. Why did the Apostle Paul uh, wrote this letter, write this letter? Because Paul is encouraging us to live lives worthy of the gospel by seeking the mind of Christ and standing firm in joyful partnership with one another. This portion of standing firm, that is my lot. Which you can also add, you know, the words press on into it. Finally, this is how Paul started the third chapter. Preachers are notorious for saying, finally, and you think the sermon is about to end. I don't think uh, Andy does that. <laughs> but actually, there are still like 20 or 30 more minutes left to say, like the famous carpenter song, we've only just begun. <laughs> so I think that's where... Um, you know, Paul got imitated by the preachers. Uh, when Paul said, finally, he's actually saying, so then. So then, which means he was speaking up on an earlier point. You know, going back to chapters 1 and 2, where Trevor and uh, Jake preached. The apostle Paul was calling the Philippian church to joyful unity with Christ-like selflessness, servanthood, and sacrifice. And from there... He is now encouraging them to rejoice. He said, rejoice. And this is not some wishy-washy word that Paul threw at them. Remember, Paul was imprisoned when he wrote this letter. Also, there are mounting pressures, increasing problems within and outside this 10-year-old Philippian church. He said, rejoice. 
And the next three words are important. It is the basis of this truth. It is the source of this pursuit in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. The true, undeterred, unfailing Christian joy lies in the Lord. Also, know that biblical joy is not a feeling based on our circumstances, but it is experienced despite our trying circumstances. As we read the Psalms, despite the tragedies, the conflicts, the pains that the people of God experienced, they were called to rejoice. They were called to sing through the raging storms. And so do we. I know it's hard to rejoice when we are suffering from illnesses, money problems, and so on. But if we know that the Lord is sovereign, that He is seated on His throne, though the fig tree shall not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Next, Paul, Paul now took a dramatic turn. Just when we thought that he will continue on about rejoicing, he said, beware of dogs. Look out for the dogs. So from rejoicing, he's now issuing a stern warning. And this is where our first point comes in, which is to stand firm against joy-mutilating deceivers. You can see Paul's seriousness in pursuit of joy, of unity, of partnership in the Philippian church. He said that there will be deceivers, evildoers, of dogs. Beware of them. These dogs. This is not a term of endearment when we call our friends or homies. Sup, dog. Or are they the cute fluffy dogs of Tita Emily or the Cottrells? No, these are rabid dogs foaming in the mouth who want to bite you, grab a piece of your flesh, never be swayed by these deceivers and false teachers. Remember, Paul is referring to them as dogs. This is a derogatory word. In the Jewish society, the Gentiles, us, they refer to us as the dogs. And here Paul is reversing the call. He's telling them that they are the dogs. They are the outcast. There's this group of Jews called the Judaizers. They tell the Gentile believers that it is okay for you to follow Jesus as long as you also follow some Jewish ceremonial laws. You know, they tell you to have circumcision part, as part of their salvation. Hence why they call the mutilators of the flesh. We have to be aware of this to defend and stand firm against those that distort the gospel. Nowadays, TV, internet, many forms of social media, there are a lot of dogs. 
those TV evangelists, those preachers of prosperity gospel that say your best life is now. They say that, yes, we need Jesus, but we need to do these other things as well. They say, yes to Jesus, plus fill in the blank. They claim for us to be saved. We also have to contribute to the church so they can buy their jet planes and travel and vacation around the world. I mean, how evil is that? Or it can be simply as work of ritual, work of, you know, taking confession, taking communion, repeated prayers, church attendance, or anything with that sort. Having ceremony of going to get us right with God. How about the work of service, such as volunteering, giving our time, pitching in, getting our hands dirty for Jesus so he will not send us to hell. These are work-based salvation that has no place for the gospel. Anything else that adds to the gospel is no gospel at all. This only cheapens the sacrifice that our Lord Jesus underwent on the cross. May it never be for us. We have to beware of these dogs. The next stand firm command, our second point, is to stand firm against joy-killing deceptions. Here we have to stand firm against the confidence in the flesh. And what are these confidence in the flesh? Paul laid out his resume in which he thought led him to salvation, to be made right with God. This was before he met the risen Savior on the road to Damascus. First he said he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. We should not put our confidence in our family heritage or status in the society. We cannot brag about the good standing of our family. We cannot claim to be righteous because our family, of our family history or family pedigree. I remember growing up in the Philippines, I held on to this. In our church in Mandaluyong City, the, the Ruizes are well known for their service and devotion to the Lord. Our Lolo, Lolo Oscar, our grandpa was an elder, a deacon in a church. He led the music. He planted many churches in the provinces close to Manila. Our nanai, nanai Eva, our grandma, played the piano every Sunday, led Sunday school, numerous Bible studies. So are my mom, my aunt, my uncles. They have held some positions in the church, pastors. They did the same thing. Our church, our family and the church community was held in high regard. But salvation does not, does not pass through genes. We have to remember that salvation to follow Jesus is a personal decision. Next, Paul said, As to the law of Pharisee, we must not put our confidence in our profession. We should not boast about the work of our hands as if we did it on our own strength. Whether we are students or those who work in hospitals, in schools, or in other businesses, remember that God is the one who brought us in that place. God 
has allotted us the boundaries of our places. Third, Paul said to zeal a persecutor of the church. We must not put our confidence in religious activity. We can't claim that our work is holier than others. And fourth, we must not put our confidence in our moral lifestyle. As Paul writes, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Again, doing good, being morally upright, having legalistic righteousness are not means for salvation. Remember, our righteousness, our good works, are as filthy as dirty rags. But you see, in and of itself, these things are not wrong. They are actually good. I mean, who doesn't want to have good family history or social status, you know, thousands of likes in Facebook and Instagram pages? Or who doesn't want to have a good profession, one that's able to get our needs and also our wants? Or how about doing religious activities, being busy doing, you know, the work of God? To be morally upright. I mean, these things are actually good. But if these good things consume us, if these good things occupy our every waking hour, then these good things are rivals to our Christ. These good things are enemies to our Christ. We then have run in vain or labored in vain. Remember the rich young ruler? He said, I did the all good deeds from my youth. What happened? In the end, he went away empty. Why? Because his master, his Lord, was money and not the Christ, our Christ. What did Paul say? Whatever I gain, I had counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He said it twice, counting everything as loss. For emphasis, he's saying everything else pales in comparison to Christ. If I view strong words to describe these things as joy, killing deceptions, or lies, look at Paul's choice of word. He said, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Rubbish. I call this word in ESV as the cute version. In the King James Version, the word actually says dung. Who would have thought that dung or manure will be mentioned on a Sunday sermon? Paul is saying everything else compared to Jesus are used baby diapers or or food wastes. Remember the parable also that Christ spoke in Matthew 13, 44, the shortest parable in the Bible. He said, The kingdom of heaven is a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy, in his joy he gives and sells all that he has and buys that field. Bottom line, it is, it is saying that we have to give up everything even the good things in life, if it is hindering or suppressing, suppressing us in seeing and savoring and satisfying our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
You know, I like these commands that Paul used in his letter. To stand firm and press on. These words are typically used by soldiers or athletes. Knowing that Paul was in Rome when he wrote this letter. I mean, he must have been surrounded by the sights and sound of arguably the best soldiers in the world. The Roman soldiers. He was chained by the Praetorian Guard, the best of the best. Not only that, he might have just been a few blocks away from the Colosseum, where the best athletes of their time, the gladiators, were assembled. To stand firm is to refuse to change. They refuse to change a position or a decision. For a soldier or an athlete, this is primarily a defensive stance, which means they are refusing to give an inch. They are holding their ground. Now, the word press on means to run fast. Run fast after an object or to go after something or someone in rapid acceleration. For a soldier or an athlete, to press on is primarily an offensive or attack mode. So we have our defensive stance against these deceivers and deceptions. Now let's talk about our offensive move. The third point, the first press-on command is that we have to press on towards joy, abounding, great gains. Paul writes that we have to press on toward the goal for the price of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And what is this upward call? These are the great, what are these great gains? So point A, we have to press on to our salvation or justification. In the Westminster Catechism, question 33, justification is defined as the act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight. As for righteousness of Christ imputed or given to us, received by faith alone. And what does it say in verse 9? To be found in him which is in Christ not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Solo Cristo, sola fide, in Christ alone, through faith alone. We can get no better definition than that. So you ask me, why do we have to press on for our salvation or justification? My aim here is simply to remember and rejoice in our salvation. Remember, I mean, you know, everybody knows their birthdays, the day that you were born here on earth. Okay, it's birthdays today. Mine was September 14, 19... I forgot the the last two (laughs) numbers. Um, But isn't it better to know your spiritual birthday You know, the day that you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and personal Savior, the day that you have placed your righteousness not on your own works, but by the finished work of Christ on the cross. The day that you were in darkness and now have seen the great light. Mine was in April 1988. Still remember that day. Isaiah 25 says, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is our Lord. 
We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in our salvation, in his salvation. Next point B. What are these other great gains? We must press on for our sanctification. For our sanctification. We must run hard for our Christian growth and maturity. In verse 10 it says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. If justification is a one-off, one-time, one-moment declaration of our righteousness, then sanctification is a process. It is a long process. That is why a Christian life is often referred to like running a marathon. You know, when we, let's go back again to the Westminster Catechism, question 35. Sanctification here says, The work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God, and are enabled more and more to die to sin and to live on to righteousness. The words that I like to focus on here in verse 9 are the words that I may know him. For this is our aim. This is our purpose. Our goal in life is none other than to know him. In Jeremiah 9.23, the Lord says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 2.2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. Imagine, you know, imagine meeting Paul, meeting the Apostle Paul, let us say, in a coffee shop. It's probably where Paul is going to be hanging out, right? And then you want to approach Paul and you say, Hi, Paul, my name is Mark. I'm, what's going to be the next words? What are you going to say? You're going to say, I'm a nurse. I work, ran this business, or whatever position or profession you are in. Paul will definitely interrupt you. He's going to say, I want to know nothing of you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And what will be our response to that? You know, in the classical book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer writes that if one becomes aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. Continues on, for what higher, more exalted, more compelling goal can there be than to know God? To know God, to know Him, to know Jesus. The Apostle Paul echoed this in, his, in verse 8 saying, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing work of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He's telling us to know Christ personally or experientially or savingly is more valuable than anything else in the world. And why 
personally? Why experientially? Why savingly? Because you can know the things, you know, you can know things about Christ and in reality not know him at all. You can know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that he was raised in Nazareth, that he did some awesome miracles, that he had the most profound teaching about life or that he died on a tree outside in Jerusalem. You can know a lot of things about Jesus but not know him at all. So the Apostle Paul is saying that what is more valuable than anything else in this world is not simply to know facts or information about Christ, but to know him personally, to know him, to know him experientially, and to know him savingly by trusting in him, by loving him, by delighting in him, by treasuring him above all things, by worshiping him alone. And how can we do this? Popular children's song says, read your Bible, pray every day, and you grow, grow, grow. Two essential dis disciplines of Christian growth are the word and prayer. The important thing here is the daily intake of reading the Bible. Daily intake of reading the Bible. Not just once a week during Sundays or once in a blue moon. And also the day-to-day, moment-by-moment prayer and communing with God. Not only praying when we're about to eat dinner, but to pray without ceasing. That's how we grow in the knowledge of Him. Other things we can do to increase our knowledge of Christ is fellowship with other believers, attending church, Bible studies, helping in the ministries like coffee, participating in Sunday school, reading classical books, of Christian books, reading about the early Christian church, and so on. So we have learned how to press on to justification and sanctification, and now Paul writes in verse 11 that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. And what is that? Point C of the great gain of Christian life is glorification. Glorification is defined as the state, the state of a follower of Christ in that we share in God's glory when we are in our resurrected bodies in the new heavens and a new earth, experiencing deeper fellowship with God, not being at risk of falling away into sin, God's glory finally being all in all. Which is also found in verse 21, in which the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. That is why Paul is able to say to die is gain, in which he wrote also that he hasn't, at that time, hasn't yet attained it. He wanted to reach that perfection which can never be completed in his lifetime. Only when we all stand before God on the last day. So then we have to press on on those that gives us joy abounding great gains of the Christian life. And last point, the second press on command is that we must press on towards joy influencing saints. In verse 17, the Apostle Paul wrote, 
Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the examples you have in us. If in the beginning of the chapter we have to beware of dogs, then here we have to imitate the saints. A Christian life is like this. If we are running away from something or someone, then we have to be running towards something or someone. We cannot be left stagnant. Otherwise, we will be going back to where we were, or even worse. I don't want to delve too much into this, as uh, Uncle Joel will be preaching on this next week in Philippians 4, of joyful partnership and fellowship with the saints next Sunday. But brothers and sisters, who are we imitating? Are we imitating as the world imitates? The rich, the powerful, the wealthy? Or do we imitate men and women who exemplifies godly characters who have shown great sacrifices for the gospel? We don't have to look far. You can look at our elders. Look at Joshua's prayer life and how he prays the Psalms, the Bible. Imitate him. Look at Trevor, of his humble service and genuine encouragement. Imitate him. Look at Uncle Joel, his meekness and passion for discipleship. Imitate him. Look at Andy, his compassion and friendship and love for the Word of God. Imitate him. Also, are we good, authentic role models to those around us? Those who are under our, within our influence or in our family and our workplace, can we, like Paul, have the audacity, the boldness to say to them, to our spouses, to our sons, to our daughters, to our friends, imitate me? Paul can confidently say this to the Philippian church because he says in 1 Corinthians 11:1, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Christ is the standard. He is the ultimate example of living a life of humility, of sacrificial service, of tremendous love. This is what we should do as followers of Christ to imitate Him. And finally, I can say finally, finally, Paul ends the chapter by saying in verse 20, Our citizenship is in heaven. Circling back to what he wrote in the beginning of the chapter about rejoicing in the Lord. What better place? I mean, the best place can there be. No chilling winds, nor poisonous breath can reach that healthful shore. Sickness, sorrow, pain, and death are felt and feared no more. The consummation of all things the place of complete joy, of infinite rejoicing, of endless feasting, the best place to be in the house of Zion. And wait, there's more. Heaven is not just a future reality or place, nor is it simply the dwelling place of those who die before Christ's return. Heaven is also a present, invisible reality for the saints living on earth. Every Christian is already blessed 
with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Raised up with Christ in regeneration, we are mysteriously but really seated with Him in the heavenly places. Ephesians 2.6 I don't know what it looks like. I mean, I'm living here, we are all living here, but our actual self is somewhere out there seated with Christ. But it's cool. So when Paul writes, our citizenship is in heaven, he's not only encouraging us to think about where we will go, but also about where we are now. It is a concept as majestic as mysterious. The already, but not yet. We see this realm, this place. We see it only in the eyes of faith. So we must set our minds on it and long for the day when heaven will not only become visible, but will overtake and transform everything. Or what, or rather, who is in heaven? Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is in heaven. Our price, our reward, our treasure. Therefore, we can say on that day, standing along with the other saints, that those sorrows that we felt, those sacrifices that we made, those sufferings that we experienced are not worth comparing to fully seeing, savoring, satisfying our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, knowing our citizenship is in heaven, may all our efforts, all our endeavors, all our energy here on earth be heaven-bound. Help us to lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely by standing firm, by defending your faith, our faith, against the false teachers and the confidence of the flesh that hinder us. Father, we pray to run with endurance the race that is set before us by pressing on toward the great benefits of our salvation, of our sanctification, to know more about you, about Jesus, and by imitating great saints. For this is our lot. For this is the life worthy of the gospel of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.